Uh, so welcome back to the GQuad podcast. We're here for another week with another special guest, uh, Mr. Ron Barker. So Ron, just so just so I don't get my uh, our audience confused, can you tell us what your actual roles were as a part member of the NCAA and what what you did in college sports? Just so I, just so I you know isn't confused on you know what your roles were. Yeah, so I started out a long time ago as a college basketball coach at Brigham Young University. I was on staff there a couple of years, and then I left for a while, and I got hired a few years later at the NCAA on their enforcement staff. So I had done computer uh, crime investigations in Asia and South America and the U.S. and had coached, and so they thought that I might be someone that would fit in with them, and they were, you know, they were the ones who look at all the issues that come up in college sports. I was at the NCAA from 1999 till 2001, so only a few years saw what it was and uh the pac 12 uh, there's a pac 10 at the time they were the only conference that had their own program to look at problems that came up and so their person was leaving to become the head of the ncaa enforcement staff and they so they hired me in 2001 i actually interviewed on 9 11 2001 to to for my job and i became the head of the ncaa uh, the pac 10 enforcement division at the time and i did that for 19 years until 2020. So you, you've obviously had many roles and another role you have is an author. You have a new book called The Reluctant Player. So we'll, we'll, we'll obviously get to that. Uh, but you've investigated some of the biggest scandals in college sports ever, and which is what we mainly want to talk about uh, on this episode. So uh, just going through it, uh, start off with uh, I'm, I'm not sure if, if we want to go in order, but the, the main one that, that has come into news in recent weeks has been uh, the Reggie Bush scandal that uh, was uh, reappeared in, in recent weeks. So talk about uh, your experience investigating that. Yeah, so Reggie Bush, uh, as you know, was a great football player at USC, and USC was rocking at the time. I mean, they were dominating everybody, and uh, at the Pac-10 people, you know, when, when someone dominates, then people start pointing fingers at them. And so at the time I started getting calls from other conferences, from schools within the PAC 12, PAC 10 and right before the NFL draft and Reggie's, I think it was his junior year. We got a call saying that his family had been taking on the take for years. And so I went with a, a law professor from USC and we went down to San Diego where his parents were living, trying to talk to them to find out what was going on. And they refused to talk to us. And so I spent the next three or four years of my life dealing with this. And Reggie, to his credit, would not talk and said, uh, Mike Garrett was the athletic director at USC at the time. And he pulled me aside and said, I'm going to tell you exactly what happened but I'm also going to tell you why we'll never talk and why he will never talk and his family will never talk. And so he explained what had gone on and explained why they wouldn't work with the NCAA. And I told him at the time, look, if what you're telling me is true, Reggie himself really isn't culpable at this. His family had taken some things, but I think if he's honest about this, he's not, has no more eligibility. They can't do anything to him and it will help USC if he comes clean with this, but he would not talk. So we went, two or three years, had the hearing. And then a couple of years after he was in the NFL, he agreed to come in. He'd lost the Heisman by that time. USC had received some of the stiffest penalties ever. And he agreed to come in and sit down and talk to us. And we did a, about a nine hour interview where he sat down. And even at that time, he was very protective of his stepfather because his stepfather had raised him. He felt loyalty to him. And so even though his stepfather had done, had, had done something, he had done it with the hopes of starting a business, not with the hopes of, hey, people give me stuff. And Reggie was very protective. So even when he talked to us, he wouldn't tell us what his stepfather had done. So it never really, we never got the full story, but you know, it is a mess. The NCA wanted to get USC, the other schools wanted to get USC. And so when they went to the hearing, it, it was a three-day hearing. Normally they're a half day to a day. Like that's the only one I've ever been to that lasted more than a day. And it was three days, three full days. And it was it was brutal. The whole thing was brutal. Pete Carroll was at, at the Seahawks at the time and he agreed to come back for a day and he sat through the first day and then he left. Um, Lane Kiffin, who was the incoming USC coach, had to stay through the whole thing, even though he wasn't involved in it at all. They made him stay through the whole thing and they treated him very badly. So it is a mess. Well, obviously, with a player of that magnitude and a, uh, a program of that magnitude, it's a big deal to go through a scandal like that. But to have 
uh, people who are involved in it, like Reggie Bush and his family, and you having to go investigate in that, and they won't speak, how much more difficult does that make your job more, more than it already is? Yeah, it's, it's impossible because at the NCA, you're not law enforcement. At the, you know, right. the PAC-10, I wasn't law enforcement. I was a guy who worked in sports. Mm-hmm. So when they don't want to talk, the only thing you have is their eligibility. So if a current athlete says, I'm not talking, you can hold them out and they can't play. But Reggie was done. He was done playing. There's nothing we could do to him. And I think he knew that. And so it makes it almost impossible. We were able to get people... Um, The whole story was there was a guy that had grown up near their family in San Diego who was not a great guy who decided to start. He was a a convicted criminal. He decided to start a sports marketing firm, and he got Reggie's dad in and said, look, I'll have you as a partner. We'll start a sports marketing firm, but you've got to bring Reggie as one of the first clients. And they had money backing from an Indian tribe in San Diego who was going to pay for a lot of this. They had an agent, an NFL agent, who agreed to come on board. So they were putting uh, things in place, but no one ever told Reggie about it. So when he was getting ready to go pro, he was like, I'm not going to, I'm going to go with an established marketing agent. And so that's when the whole thing fell apart. The guy who started up said, well, if you do that, then I'm going to tell everyone what we did because they'd been letting his parents live in a house for free for the last year. And so that's where it all blew apart. And when you don't, when there's no incentive for him to talk, then it's almost impossible to get him to talk. I tried to convince them, look, if, if this is the story, the NSA can't do a whole lot to anybody. But if you don't tell it, then they can come after you. And he ended up losing his Heisman. USC got 20. I think they lost 20 scholarships a year for three years. I mean, it was, it was brutal what they did to him. Well, you, you brought up how, how the family was, you know, mixed up with, you know, convicted felons and things like that. Uh, Lonzo Ball and his family, obviously, they were, in, they were at UCLA. His dad had gone into business with um, a guy named Alan, uh, who was childhood friends with the, with the Ball brothers. And they had gone in, into business together to make the big baller brand, uh, the clothing line for, for the kids. And it turns out a couple years later that Lonzo Ball and his father had found out that Allen was actually a convicted felon and was uh, embezzling money from the business to go and, you know, for, for his own benefit. And obviously that, that didn't happen when Lonzo was in college, but it happened in later years. But it, it, it seems to be the trend, especially in Southern California, where these people are getting mixed up in, you know, businesses with fishy people. And it, and it turns out that, it, you know, it, it ends up hurting them in the end. And, yeah, you, you, know, you, said, you said the same thing with Reggie Bush. It was a childhood, for, it was someone who grew up with them. It wasn't mm-hmm. just some guy that came off the streets that they should have known, hey, he's a bad guy. It was someone who they'd known for years. And so it kind of blurs it a little bit and, and makes it harder to make good decisions. And when you have parents that are, you know, looking out for, and I don't want to characterize Reggie Bush's stepdad because I got no indication he's like this, but I, I it, when you, when you get parents who are trying to, hey, I'm going to start a business or I'm going to do something for myself, then it blurs. And the NCAA has these rules that you know people just don't understand. They think they're stupid. So then it causes whole, all sorts of problems. And so it, it takes a lot for a parent to go, wait a second, this could hurt my kid. I got to drop what I want to do and walk away from it. And, and right. most of the times they do, but when they don't, you have these situations. Well, the, the news when it came out, the, the Allen person was a, a childhood friend uh, of the kids that are his son and, and the ball brothers played um, in, in the same travel ball games. But the father was good friends with him as well. But he never knew that he was a convicted felon and he had gone to jail years prior for the same thing that, that he was doing to the ball family, which was embezzling money, which I, I'm not sure if, uh, you know, uh, Bush's stepfather knew, uh, you know, uh, prior to. Uh, him going in, into that business that that guy was, was a convicted felon but it, it, it seems to be uh you know a common occurrence w- with these things uh but the ncaa they are constantly in controversy with scandals and things like that why do you think the the ncaa is always involved in these you know fishy businesses and and scandals all the time yeah it's because and, you know, I've changed over the years. When I was a young kid growing up in Southern California, the NCAA had rules and you kind of, you know, rolled your eyes at some of them, but they were the rules and you knew what they were. Then as people get, as time has gone on, the NCAA rules haven't really evolved and people have gotten more greedy. And so when you now say to young people, yeah, you're going to get a full college scholarship and you're going to be able to get four years for free of school and get an education. In my day, that was a big deal. And it was worth a lot of money and, and how much money you're going to make afterwards. Now, when you talk to young people about it, they kind of go, Shh, 
how much money the school's making off of those kids. And so it's a different mentality. The NCAA still has rules. They've, they've come way, way, way off the rules in the last five to 10 years. Kids can now make money. They can do endorsements. They couldn't do any of that. So it was this whole uh, view of amateurism. If you're going to play college sports, you're an amateur, no matter how much the schools are making. And when, when I was a young guy, coaches weren't making millions and millions of dollars. They were they having a comfortable living, but they weren't getting rich. Now you have coaches making seven, eight, nine, $10 million a year. You can no longer look at a kid and say, yeah, you're an amateur. You know, these coaches are going to make 10 million. Your schools are going to make lots of money, but you're an amateur. And that's what's t- changed in the last 20 years. It's, it's, I used to really get upset with people who said, you know, they should get paid. Cause I'd go, you know how much I would have given to get a full scholarship? Cause I, I played basketball, but I walked on and I'm like, if you had a full scholarship and you didn't have to work and you, and you had tutors and you had everything and you can't fail if you try in school, if you're an athlete, cause they have everything to help you. But I've completely changed now because now I'm like, no coaches, commissioners, everybody's making so much money. It's not fair to the kids anymore. And kids should get some of that, some of the money. So that's why that there's so many controversies because the NCAA has these rules about amateurism. Yeah, I, I had those same thoughts as well. I, I remember earlier uh, when, when I had first gotten into college sports, I was the same way. I thought the kids were amateurs because a couple of friends of mine had gotten uh, college scholarships for full rides. And uh, I thought that that was good enough for them. And I thought that they shouldn't receive pay. But then when news started coming out that every time a college football coach became the highest paid coach, Nick Saban got a new contract to become yeah. the highest paid football coach. Yeah. Yeah. And he's making 10, you know, $15 million a year each time a coach got a new contract. So, you know, that, that was my idea. And now kids, you know, are getting a sponsorship deals. NIL is, is a new big thing these days. And uh, I was happy to see that. But obviously the, the NCAA makes, makes way more money than they already do with, you know, with the NIL deals that the kids are getting anyway. So at, at least they're getting a cut. You know what's happening, though, and one story real quick. There's a kid who I think he's from Texas who signed. He was a high school senior, left his senior year in December, graduated early and went to Ohio State, signed an NIL deal for one and a half million or something like that, was on Ohio State's team this past season from December until what, May when school got out. And then he left Ohio State, went back to Texas. And he's I don't know where I think he's at University of Texas. I don't know what school he's at, but he got his one and a half million that Ohio State set up for his NIL deal. He never went to school there. So, you know, <laughs> kids are starting to do stuff like that. You're, you're seeing, you know, when, when we were talking about NIL, and it sounds good, but I'd sit there because I was the only one at the Pac-10, the Pac-12 at the time who had done what I did. And I'd say, okay, you guys, I understand the concept and it sounds good, but what's going to stop some booster in, in the South from saying, okay, I'm going to start up a t-shirt business for this kid. We're going to give you $10 for every t-shirt that we sell or, or $50 for every t-shirt with your name on it. And I'm going to buy a thousand, hundred thousand t-shirts. And that's going to recruit the kid to come to the school. And they were like, oh, that won't happen. Well, it's happening left and right. Coaches are screaming about it. It's not fair. It's recruiting. Anyone who had a brain could see that. But the, the problem in college athletics is you have so many people running things who never played, who never coached, and who don't understand what's going to happen. So they're looking at it from this high in the sky, you know, like, oh, well, this looks great. This is, let's help these kids. And they don't think about what the ramifications are going to be. And it's a mess. It's a mess right now. If you go talk to coaches. Obviously there's pros and cons to the NIL deals, but it's a system that can be exploited by players who, like like you just said, that one kid who went to college for a couple months, not even, probably not even a full year, got his one and a half million dollars and then left. So uh, obviously it's a system that can be exploited and obviously families are are doing it too. And as we just talked about with Reggie Bush and the Ball brothers, it's mainly families that are, you know, embroiled in this controversy and the kids are sometimes left out the loop or in, in, you know, in the plans together which brings up the whole varsity blue scandal. Yeah. Let, which... let me tell you, let me tell you a quick story. First, go another ahead, case. Um, there's a, a kid. I, I'm trying to remember. I was at the NCAA at the time. So this is probably in two late nineties, early 2000. And there was a kid who had no father and his mom was illiterate and he was a big time college football recruit from high school. So his high school coach started going around to schools and saying, I'm helping him with his recruitment. If you want to talk to him, it's $5,000. If he comes to your school for a visit, it's X amount of dollars. And he got lots of schools to pay. And so we get into it and start talking to him. And 
the kid didn't even know his coach was doing this, the high school coach. The mom didn't know it. So I, I, I'm sitting in Memphis, Tennessee at midnight at a hotel talking to someone who was an informant who was the assistant high school coach at the school. And I said, why are you telling me this? And he goes, I was supposed to get a Ford Explorer and they didn't give it to me. So <laughs> that's why he told us. It turns out that the case, they, they went after the coach and the assistant coach and they used an old slavery statute that was still on the book saying he sold a human being and they threw them both in jail. So stuff like that's been going on. So now with the varsity blues, you have parents who want their kids to go to the best schools or whatever schools they want to. It's going to be tough. Maybe they don't have the grades to get in. So they go to the coaches and they say, look, I'll donate $500,000 to your program. If you put my, my daughter as the last person on your team and recruiter under the favored nation, each school has so many athletes they get in that don't really fit academically. They're close, but they don't get there. But because they're athletes, they let them in. So that's what happened. Parents were paying. They had one guy that's from down Southern California who, who brokered all these deals and he'd find someone at the school that was agreeable to do this and that athletic administrator or a coach, they would bring in someone as the last member of the rowing team. And they make up all these fake pictures of them rowing where they never had rowed in their lives and they'd get them on the school and the coach is thinking, Hey, I'm getting a half million dollars for my program. It wasn't even for himself or herself. It was for my program. People took money for themselves. Don't get me wrong. But I know of cases where the coach took it thinking, okay, we'll be able to use this to buy more boats, to do the things we need to do. And it's not going to hurt me to have this one extra person on the, on the team who's never going to compete for us. And she'll get into school and her family will be happy. So it's a win-win. And it blew up. It was huge. I, I remember we were going to the Pac-12 basketball championship and I got a call on, on the, as I landed in Las Vegas about this. And I was going... Oh my goodness, this is going to be big. And then I remember thinking, what's the difference from back East, the people who are rich, who they name a building after them and they donate $50 million to get their kids into school. It's no different than that. It's just using sports now. And so it's been going on forever. And it's now it's for whatever reason, people hated this and it went public and you've seen people go to jail for, for a little bit of time. Yeah. I was watching uh, the Dan Patrick show and they had Ed Orgeron on there. And he was talking about how he tried to recruit Adrian Peterson to USC when he was at USC. And Adrian Peterson uh, didn't want to go to USC because if he went to Oklahoma, his father, who was incarcerated at the time, could watch his games. So Ed Orgeron tried to get Adrian Peterson's father moved to a prison in Los Angeles so that he can watch Adrian Peterson's games and he, he couldn't get it done. So Adrian Peterson ended up going to Oklahoma, having a nice NFL career. Now that story has no money involved in it or no uh, things like that, but it shows the extent of uh, what coaches are willing to do to get players and how much families weigh in on these young kids decisions. Like, like you said, with the varsity blue scandal, it's mainly parents who are, you know, wanting to get their kids into school. Yeah, that, that story with Ed Orgeron is actually a nice story that he's going to figure out for the dad to be able to watch his son. These coaches, what, what's interesting to me is if you talk privately and get to know the coaches, they'll tell you stories that you'll like your head will explode, but they'll never go public with it. Like that he told because, hey, there's no debt, there's no negative. He's not hurting anybody. He didn't do anything illegal. So they'll tell you those stories. Now imagine the stories they don't tell. There's so many stories that I would, I would go to schools to do presentations and talk about. And many times the assistant coach would start saying, well, what about, and the head coach would stop and say, wait, we don't talk about other coaches. Cause there's just this unwritten rule. They'll complain to you privately and they'll tell you what's going on, but they won't go on the record. They won't give you any proof. And so you sit there going, okay, so you're complaining. I'm not doing enough for you, but you who have the information won't give it to me. And so, you know, it, it's frustrating. I'm sure it, it's definitely a frustrating job to be involved with that because obviously they have it, it's like a, it's like a little club they have unwritten rules where you share or you don't share i was surprised that ed, ed orgeron was sharing that story when i first heard it and obviously it didn't have any money involved but you know it showed that the extent that uh, a program like usc who has been involved in these type of scandals themselves would be willing to go to the lengths to get a player like Adrian Peterson and have his father move to Los to a Los Angeles prison just to watch his games. Obviously, they, they didn't get it done, but there's you know been serious scandals you know in in, in the past. One one uh, thing that that was just brought brought up today was uh, Rick Pitino, and uh, he was in in the rumblings to get the Maryland head coaching job, and uh, him and Louisville you know were 
and 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 a bunch of scandals not only one but a bunch when he first started and then went obviously uh when his tenure there ended were did, did you ever investigate any of those or did you ever hear about any of those scandals yeah, i heard about it. if you go back and and you know i don't want to cast dispersion i don't know rick patino i've never been involved with him. i didn't interview him and never did any cases with him but go back and look at his career before louisville and you'll you'll just see you'll see stories after stories after stories and you know it's Rick Neuheisel, do you know that name? I do not. He's a, now he's a commentator, I think for CBS football, but he, uh, he coached at Washington, Colorado and USC. And, you know, it, it, he was involved in one of the gambling, like he had a group of friends and they went out and they would bid on NCAA teams for basketball and they would buy teams. And if the teams did well, they'd win money. And, you know, had nothing to do with football, had nothing to do with recruiting, nothing. He was just doing stuff with a group of friends of his. But the NCAA had a big push at the time about no, no gambling. No, they had don't bet on it was the theme they had. And they had posters and things. They went out and lectured everybody. So when Rick Neuheisel got caught doing this, it was a huge scam. If you go look at stories in the news, it was giant. And that, I was in the middle of it all. He ended up getting terminated at Washington. And then a few years later, shows up as the head coach at UCLA in our conference, same conference. And I'm thinking... So, you know, coaches can do these things. And, and again, what he's doing had nothing to do with recruiting, didn't break rules. It just was a gambling thing the NCAA had, but it became such a national story. And just a few years later, he's back in the conference at another school. I think you look at these coaches that have a history of this, they're going to get hired again. There's a lot of coaches that are good coaches, but they can't stay out of trouble and they disappear for a year or two and then they're back and they do well again. And so there's the NCAA and schools and people talk about, oh, we need to stop this but they keep hiring them. They're the ones that keep hiring them, keep bringing them back. And so, you know, I, there's not much of a, uh, except for the embarrassment of, of the media, and unless you decide I'm not going to do those kind of things, there's not a huge disincentive to do them. And with Rick Pitino, obviously he was beloved by the fans and, you know, he, he was beloved by the p people that he was working with. When when this scandal came out and he, and he left Louisville, he went to Greece to go coach the Greek national team and obviously get out of the public eye for a little while. And then he came back and he's now the coach at Iona. But you see this all the time with coaches in the NFL or even in college mainly. Every time their teams tend to do badly, they'll bring up these past scandals, you know, to bring a little heat on them because all coaches are, you know, usually involved in, you know, some uh, you know, some of these, you know, bad businesses or, or things like that where they're doing things that are, you know, twisting the rules a little bit and sometimes sometimes they're not all involved in it directly but it happened under their watch and that's something that happened a lot with rick patino whether he knew about it or not or whether he was ahead of some of them he mainly he was but um i obviously don't know, don't know rick patino either i'm not gonna you know cast anything on him but bringing that up about uh things happening under coaches watches and things like that uh, one thing that was brought up in recent years with, with, with the movie that came out with uh, Al Pacino uh, as Joe Paterno, the whole Penn State uh, child abuse scandal that went on, whether or not uh, Joe Paterno knew about it or not, or whether he did know about some things and then some things did happen under his, under his watch and, you know, behind his back. Did you ever hear about any of that and what, what happened with him? Yeah, so the person, right, I was at the NSA during the time. Uh, mm -hmm. And before that, they had they had an issue with, with Penn State. I don't remember what it was. And the woman that sat right next to me, who I trained, ended up getting it. And she didn't know who Joe Paterno was. And I'm thinking, how do you work at the NSA and not know who Joe Paterno is? Right. And that used to drive me crazy. But, um, you know, when, when that whole thing with the child abuse stuff came out in Sandus Jerry Sandusky, uh, looking at it from an NCA standpoint, I used to argue with people and say, this has, is not an NCAA issue. It's not violating the NCAA rules. It may be deplorable. You may hate everything that's going on, but this should be law enforcement, not the NCAA involved in it. And people used to argue with me, attorneys, and I'd sit there going, show me what NCAA rule they violated. I mean, it's not an NCAA issue. And, and the NCAA ended up getting burned on it because they got too involved in it and they shouldn't have. They should have let law enforcement deal with it. It's, the NCAA made a rule a few years later about head coach responsibility. And so now it used to be, you know, something happened under a basketball coach and they, they fry an assistant coach and say, hey, uh, and then assistant coach, there's a big article in Sports Illustrated way back in the day about all these assistant coaches who are now selling cars because they'd gotten burned. 
And some of them would say, look, I was supposed to be brought back. That was the understanding, but they never brought me back. And, and to think the head coach didn't know about it, it's, it's ridiculous. So the NSA put a rule in saying, if anything happens in the program, the head coach bears the responsibility, which was at the time I thought, hmm, this is going to be interesting. The coaches were so upset about it. I knew, oh, okay, this is going to work. And so then it became at the Pac-10, I would go around to coach and say, how do you defend yourself? Say a booster goes out and pays some family $100,000. You don't even know about it, but now you're responsible for it. What do you do about it? So we developed a whole program for coaches about here's things you can do to help yourself if that should happen with the NCAA. And then we had it happen where an assistant coach did something or a, fan, a booster did something. And the NCAA said, head coach, you're on the hook for the head coach responsibility by law. And the head coaches would call and say, what do I do? And I'd say, well, did you do all these steps I told you to do? And Two or three times they had done it and the NCAA took, looked at what they had and they said, okay, you're released. We're not going to, we're not going to cite you for it. And so that's, that's something that's still on the books. The head coach is responsible for the whole program, the actions of everybody under his or her program. Obviously that does bring in some controversy because some things happen behind coaches backs that they don't know about, but yep. people view it as the head coach is the one running the ship. And yep. if their ship happens to go down and it has nothing to do with, you know, what they're doing, it still went down. It's still your fault. And, you know, that can bring something into things like that. It's kind of like a corporation. If, a, if mm -hmm. a, something happens at a, at a workplace and the boss doesn't know, the boss is still going to be ultimately responsible for it. I was watching a, a movie came out a couple of years ago called The Big Short, which uh, went, went over the uh, uh, 2008 financial crisis. And the whole plot of the movie is the heads of the corporations that were involved in this uh, ended up having the lesser employees take the fall for what they had done uh, for, for the stock market and they uh, had them take the fall for it, which I have seen at sports several times where head coaches or heads of organizations have done shady things and it's the lesser employees that take the fall for it and are the ones that are fired and the head coaches stay in place. Yeah. Which, and the athletic directors. Uh-huh. They never get held responsible for hiring the person in the first place. Right. So it's it's usually always the you know the head athletic director that's the one that's orchestrating these things. Yep. But the lesser employees are the ones that are uh you know told to hey take the fall for this one. We'll get you back later on or down the road we'll help you out get a job somewhere else then that down the road comes and you know that that favor is never repaid yeah, which you know exactly tends right. to be um you know a common a common occurrence yeah that, that's that's exactly right and it happens over and over and over again that i can't remember when that article came out in sports Illustrated. it's got to be 30 years 25 30 years ago but it was exactly that and it had example after example and it went to these guys workplace where they were whatever they were doing and saying you used to be an assistant coach at whatever school and now you're selling used cars and they, and they would tell their story and it was interesting i'm, I'm actually glad you you brought up the uh the nca and law enforcement because as we were just talking about with joe paterno um the the child abuse thing w was going on for years and paterno handled some of it in-house and on some occasions then uh, delayed uh, reporting it to the NCAA. And then when he finally did and was pressured to go ahead and uh, br bring it to the NCAA, who then brought it to law enforcement, obviously the, the NCAA had their hand in, in, in the cookie jar a little bit too much in that, um, in that instance. And they, they, they got a lot of heat for that. So I, I, I think that I, that I definitely agree with you on that part, that the NCAA has trouble um, separating law from their own rules as opposed to you know you know on, on sports shows when when things like this happen and you know laws are broken the main thing is what ncaa rules that they broken how does this affect the ncaa when in reality it has no, no, nothing to do with the ncaa at all it has something to do with laws being broken when you're dealing with uh, child endangerment issues there are rules laws on the books for universities that they have to report out but there's people who have reporting of responsibilities and that doesn't even involve the NCAA. Like the NCAA shouldn't even, they immediately should have called law enforcement and said, here, we're handing this off, go talk to these people. And they should not have been, I don't know that they were that involved because I think ultimately it went to the president of the university. And I think the president also got fired and, mm -hmm. because they weren't reporting the things they were supposed to be right. reporting too. So they weren't following the state laws and federal laws. Yeah, because I, I think in, in, that, in that paternal case, they had uh, notified campus police 
and then the campus police failed to notify the actual law enforcement, which was the whole thing. They, they were caught in like this mixed web of who, who do I report to? Because that was the main thing with Joe Paterno is on his side, on his case, when he when he had, I think he testified, it was either during the case or years later he had testified. Um, one of his arguments was the rules are all over the place in terms of, okay, what happens here? Who do I report to in, in this instance? And, you know, the, the NCAA has these weird rules where depending on, on what the situation is, you have to uh, report to this person or report to that person. And, and I think the, the rule in, uh, in that ins instance at the time with Joe Paterno was he had to um, report to his direct superior. And his argument was he had no idea who his direct superior yeah. was in terms of the hierarchy of the, of the NCAA rules. There was a case a number of years ago at Baylor with men's basketball where a teammate killed another teammate. Right. And the, coach, the coach hit the whole thing. The same thing. You've got to have the common sense to say, wait, this is law enforcement. Let me go to law enforcement. Let me not go to the NCAA or to my compliance people at the school. And I think it's an easy thing to see. If you can't see that, you shouldn't have those jobs. I mean, it's, it's really easy to see. And when, and when people get confused about that, you're thinking, okay, they've got bigger issues. Right. And, and I think that's the main problem, too, is that there are no strict set rules of all instances under one umbrella should be under one rule set in terms of if something happens, you report to this direct person here instead of, you know, it going down the line. Okay, you report to this person, then that person reports to this person. It should just be a direct context. You know, I, I, think, I think that there are set things, but I think coaches get so big and so powerful, especially ones who have been there for a while, that the rules don't apply to them. So if it had been a first year coach, I think they would have been clear who they're supposed to talk to. But someone who's been there so like you walk around and go to coaches who are very well known, who've been very successful and the rules don't apply to them. They can do what they want. And so they get confused when something like that happens, like, oh, who am I supposed to talk to? Because I, I can do whatever I want. So I think that I mean, you look, you talked about the pay for coaches in many states. The highest state paid employee is a football coach at a school more than anybody else in the state's making from, from state of uh, finances. And there's something wrong with that. When the football coach is making more than the president of the university, who's, who's their boss's boss, you, like, I just, you just don't see that that often. Mainly the rules are, well, the rules at that time were report to your direct superior. But the head coach is the main person there. He's the one running the ship. So they rarely even have a direct superior in, in terms of, you know, you know what's going on. And I, I think that was the main thing uh, that, that happened in terms of the, of the Penn State scandal where it, it went through so many, uh, you know, uh, lines of uh, communication that once it got to, uh, you know, the president, who, who was obviously fired in, in, in that case, and uh, you know the the school's director, they were trying to figure out. Okay, obviously this situation was mishandled, and the, their main job is how do we save face and make the college look good? And I I think that was what happened there, and, and it ended up being the downfall of that um, of of that program at the time. Obviously, it's rebounded now, but uh, yeah, I, I think that's the the NCA's main problem was they have some rules that are quite ambiguous that, that people don't really understand and, and it ends up hurting players, coaches, and people involved. Yeah, and in that case, it wasn't even an NCAA issue. So NCAA shouldn't even have been in the conversation, except that, hey, the guy who's the head of the program also is an NCAA, doesn't work for the NCAA, but reports through another things to the NCAA. But in this, I don't think anybody thought the NCAA should someone should have reported this to the NSA because it's a law enforcement issue. Just, just to go back to the NIL deals and things like that where the systems are being exploited, uh, the Fab Five was one, one of the biggest stories in college basketball. Of they were uh, what was they were receiving money from a booster who was uh, you know either giving their families money or ha had supplied them. I, I think it was with Jalen Rose. He had uh, given him a coat. And, and things like that, uh, because obviously they, they were from, you know, in, in inner city communities where they didn't have money like that to, you know, su you know, supply for school and, you know, clothing and things like that. What's, what's your opinion on that now with how the uh, Fab Five were treated then with how players are treated now with, with the NIL deals? Because I, I, I still think the Fab Five are, are, are still uh, like the, their, their banners are still uh, taken down. And I, I, thought, I, I thought they just reinstated them not too long ago. I, I'm not I sure think, about that. Though. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I, I, I that. think that they, they gave them their wins back, but, but the banners are still down. Because one of them is the head coach now. Right, Juwan Howard. Yeah. So, 
you know, the thing is, nowadays, what they received, it could be permissible. They could have worked out a structured deal and they could have gotten way more than they got. The thing was, they kept lying about the whole thing and they were defiant to everybody. I think they brought on the trouble. They'll, they'll, they'll deny this and say I'm crazy and everything, but I, it passed through my hands at the NCA. I had that case for just a short little brief period because we were just waiting for Michigan to do some things. So I became the caretaker for a short while and they just lied and denied everything. If you know, it's one thing to come in and say, and I used to tell people this, if you do something wrong or if you do something you don't think is wrong, but other people are saying it's wrong. If you come in and tell us what happened and are honest about it, we can figure out how to deal with it. But when you lie and you hold to that lie, that's when it blows up. And every case I worked on that became giant where that someone would not come clean with it. And I think with Michigan, you know, some of those guys were inner city guys, but not all of them. If you look back, there's, there's at least one member of that team, very prominent, who came from an okay background. And he kept saying, I'm an inner city kid. Well, he wasn't. And so, you know, you, you paint this picture and then when you, you find out, oh, that's not all true, then you start losing some of that sympathy. And I think that happened where people at, at first, they were so well known and they changed the look of uniforms. If you remember back in before them is the short shorts and then they became with the big long baggy shorts that people still wear. They changed a lot of things and they were very popular if, and they could have really taken it even further, but then they wanted to, I guess, push back a little bit and fight. And instead of just figuring out how to work the system to, to benefit them, they did things and then lied about it and it became an antagonistic thing. And that's what happened. I, I don't think that, like, if you look at what they got versus what kids are getting legally today, it's not even close. They, they didn't get that much, but it was in a time where you couldn't take anything. I think that was a, one, one of the main things that led to that group's breakup was they were involved in this controversy and all three of them were probably upset with the pressure that, that was on them. And, you know, they, they got mixed up in the lies that they, that they were trying to cover themselves up and, you know, cover up the program and, and things like that. And then, and then when you have success afterwards, like Jalen Rose has, you're embarrassed by that because you realize you grow up a little bit and you realize, oh, yeah, that's not going to look good for me. My employer, ESPN or whoever is not going to like it if that becomes the main story about me. So they want to bury it and just say, look, it was the past. I was young and, and they don't want it to keep coming up and keep talking about it. It was interesting when I was at the PAC 12, I, I was a source for an ESPN guy who, who he called me up and he covered the PAC 12 and he'd say, you know, I, I, I need to know some things. And I'd say, look, I'm not going to tell you. And, and we became friends over the years. And I'd say, I'll give you some background, but I'm not giving names. And if you ever use my name, it ends. We'll never, I'm never going to talk to you again. So for years, I became a source for him. Sometimes I'd use it to say, I need to plant a story out there to help spur the case along. Sometimes he was just trying to figure out and the stories that were being reported were completely wrong. So I tell him, you know, this is, this is wrong. This is what's going to happen. There's one famous case where everybody was saying what was going to happen. I said, that's not going to happen. He's like, how do you know? And I said, cause I'm in the middle of it all. And he goes, if I say that and I'm wrong, it's going to bury me. And I said, look, I can't predict what the NCAA committee is going to do, but here's what's happening. And so he went on the record saying, it's not going to be as bad as everyone thinks. The penalty is not going to be bad. And he was right. And so from then on, we were very close. And he used to say to me, you know, what, what's your, what do you have a problem with ESPN? And I'd say ESPN comes on and does these 30 for 30s or, you know, they have something about how bad the NCAA is or how bad whatever is. And yet, and they're holier than that. And they have 10 of their people are people who are in the middle of scandals who used to be coaches and did terrible things. And now they're working for ESPN as on-air people. You can't have it both ways. You either got to be the ones who say, we're going to stand up for what's right. Or you got to be the ones who say, okay, we're employing all these guys who did bad things. And, you know, there's a middle ground here, but they wouldn't, wouldn't do that. So I used to point out that to him and say, okay, what about this person? He'd go, what'd they do? And I'd tell him, he'd go, oh, I didn't know that. And I say, yeah, you guys don't know half the stuff that your own people are doing. And so that's for me, watching college, watching sports has changed. When I was young, I watched everything. Now I watch a game and I'm like, oh yeah, I know that guy, that guy, that guy, they did this, this, this. And so it changes how you watch games. I, I still watch stuff, but not as fanatically as I did. And now I root sometimes not based on ability, but on the guys I don't like who I, who I know are bad people. I want them to lose. And it's not, it's not a good way to watch sports. It's not, it's kind of ruined it for me. I'm, I'm actually the same way. Uh, I have brought up Adrian Peterson and uh, when, when I was a kid, I, w I was born and raised in Chicago and uh, the Bears obviously play the Vikings twice a year. And I was a huge Adrian Peterson fan. Obviously, when I got older, he became involved in the child abuse scandals. 
And obviously that hurt a lot because he was my he was my favorite player. And years went on, and I think he was asked when he went. He was either in uh, New Orleans or Arizona, or I think he might might have been in Washington. He was asked. Um, he was asked about his child uh, child abuse uh, case. Obviously, he was taken to jail for that, and you know that that case went went through. Um, and they asked him about his son, and they they asked him how his um, you know parenting skills had changed. And he said it didn't. He said I still do the same things. I still you know discipline my son with the switch. And it, it it became really hard for me to root for Adrian Peterson ever again because of, of some of the things that he's done. And sometimes I'll I'll see players where uh, I, you know I'll I'll read things about their past, and it, it's hard to root for them, and it, it's hard to you know not see them in that light. Um, especially Adrian Peterson, which hurt me. So, so every time I see an Adrian Peterson highlight, or like with Ed Orgeron, I hear, uh, you know, that story about him try, trying to move his dad to Los Angeles. It hurts to to to, to see, you know, some of your favorite players or uh, players you thought were holier than thou, and sometimes they have their fall from grace, which has occurred on several times on m- m- many occasions with me. And uh, I, I'm just glad to hear that somebody else has those same viewpoints because I, I tell people the same thing. Um, you know, I'm like, I can't root for this guy anymore because of what he does. Like, it's it's against things that I believe in. It's against my morals. And a- every excuse I get was focus on what he's doing on the field. If he's, you know, get, get if he's on your team, root for him. Or if, if he's getting you a thousand yards per season, root for him. But it's, it's both off and on the field for me. Yeah, it's, it's also one of the things that being so close inside it, a lot of what gets reported isn't true or it's shaded in one way or the other. So I used to like, people would like what you're saying. They tell me a story about someone that they used to really like. And I'd say, Oh, they're not a bad guy. This is what happened. That, that what's being reported is not true. And they'd go, well, how do you know? And I said, cause I was there. I'm like in the interviews, doing the interviews of it. And so I, like, I, for me, it's only when I have firsthand personal knowledge of it, that's when it affects me the most. But like I sit now and I watch, and I, and I don't like the money issues in, college, in sports, not just college pro sports. I it, it hit a point where all of a sudden the money became so important. And like Major League Baseball right now, having the potential lockout, an average person who's struggling to make ends meet is looking at that going, everybody arguing is rich. Like I can't root for any of them. And it just affects the way you look at stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm actually glad you, you brought that up. Because we, we, we haven't been covering the uh, lockout for the MLB uh, on, on our podcast recently. But I, I, I've been outspoken against the MLBPA because, uh, you know, Rob Manfred usually because, like, like, like you have said, he's the head of Major League Baseball. So if things go wrong, it's, you know, he, he he's the one that takes the fall. But uh, I've seen reports and, and things that have came out saying that Manfred was the one who was bringing in the talks before the last year started to get a deal done. And the uh, Players Association cut that out. And yeah. then before uh, the World Series, the, uh, Manfred came back to them again and said, let's get a deal done before the year ends and let's have an, a season ready to go for next year. And the MLBPA refused to speak with him. And they I, they did the same thing in 2020 with the COVID season where they had arguments over money and things like that. And uh, I, I, I think it's the same way. All Everyone involved is rich. Obviously, the, the, the billionaires don't want to have a lot of money taken out of their pockets in terms of, of things like that. But you, you, see, you see these things with Derek Jeter, for instance, who, who just uh, gave up his CEO job with the Marlins. He put in maybe $25 million of, of, of his own money to be a part of that, of that organization, got a salary of $5 million per year. That was reported in the press, but news came out recently that when he quit, it was actually ten million per season, and he had doubled what he made uh, to invest in the Marlins. So I, I, I think it's a, it's a big deal um, in terms of you know players arguing over money who are already you know very, very wealthy or at least doing well for themselves. But yeah. it, it, it it it's a whole it's a, it's a whole thing. For me, it's like when I was at the Pac-12 at the very end. I would sit there and marvel saying, okay, we're making announcements about a green initiative. We're making announcements about playing the historically black colleges, which is a great, these are all great things, but we're not talking about actual games and what we're doing. Like when did all of a sudden we become the social conscience of the world and forget that, Hey, we're here to play sports and entertain fans. That's what the college sports is. And so I think you have too many people 
that have their own agendas in pro and college sports that instead of thinking, let's provide the best competition, that's what we're supposed to do. And then in our personal lives, if you want to be involved in causes, let's go do it. Great for them. But that becomes more important than the actual competition. And so you're starting to see, I think there's a lot of social issues that come up that might be great issues, but many fans are getting turned off by it. And I think they're starting to lose their fans in, in a lot of different sports. Same thing with, you know, major major league sports. They're going into, you know, social justice causes and things like that. And fans are really here just to see the sports. Yep. You know, yep. mainly I, I have a, a lot of friends who uh, every time, uh, uh, you know, they, they play the, the national anthem. They are asked to stand up, remove their hats and show respect to the anthem. And they're like, oh, my God, like, can we just get to the sports? And I'm sometimes I'm the same way. If I'm going to, I'm you know, I go to the baseball games every year for to watch my White Sox, and sometimes it'll be 90 degrees in in LA, and I'll have to. I'm sitting in the sun, and I really don't want to stand for the national anthem. So sometimes uh, a lot of people are really upset with you know how the leagues are sometimes. Uh, taking advantage of social justice causes just just to save face like like uh, what what you had said about um, you know leagues being the ones who take the fall for it like like the NCA and the Fab Five with with what you said was they're usually there to help like 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 you had said with um, you know scandals like this where if a scandal goes down and people are honest with you the NCA obviously doesn't want things like this happening under under their nose and do their best to if you tell us the truth we'll try to help all of us save face and you know get out of this clean yeah my job was really unique at the pac-12 that i would go and investigate and find out what had happened and then we'd have a hearing where i'd present the facts of the case and so i was at odds with the school but then i'd turn around and go to the ncaa hearing and i'd sit at the school's table helping them defend themselves so but when you do that you really get to see both sides and you get to understand, okay, what, what are the feelings going into this? And so it helped me to understand like, hey, sometimes I looked at it one way, but the coach looked at it a different way. And I got to understand their view. It, it was, I don't know of anyone else who had that role because no other conference did it. I was the only one who did it in the whole United States. The attorneys who represent the schools are fighting for the schools. The attorneys who are representing the NCAA are fighting for the NCAA. So there's no one really in the middle. And I really got to be where I could see even when someone, I, I tell coaches this, if you did something wrong, just tell me and we'll figure it out. You may get penalties. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to say, oh, that's okay. I'm going to tell you, yeah, this is what you did wrong. Here's what we're going to write up about it. But this is what you need to say at the hearing. And you're going to have a penalty, but we can lessen the penalty if you're honest about it. Once you lie and continue lying to me, then all bets are off. And most of the coaches got that. And at the end, I even had schools when I was at the NCAA who I was prosecuting who would write to me afterwards and say, Thank you. You were honest. We didn't like what you said. We disagreed, but you were honest and told us what you're going to do the whole time. And we appreciate that because you didn't change things in the middle of you weren't trying to burn us. You were just trying to present what you thought the facts were. And so I think that's how the job was. When you get the NCAA wanting to bury somebody, which happens from time to time, then it, it loses all perspective and, and the schools get really angry about it and they can't defend themselves from it. My main question for you is you said that, that you were with the NCA and the Pac-12 up until last year. Am I correct about that? Right, right. What made you leave and, and, and what, what happened there? Are, are you retired now? Or what, what's the whole deal with that? Yeah, so the Pac-12, um, we had a commissioner come in about 10 years ago and it changed from we're here to help the schools to we're a money business. And he wasn't a college sports guy, didn't know a lot about college sports, throughout everything we did. and then redid some of the same things and made the same mistakes instead of learning from it, brought in people that weren't college sports people. And I really started not liking being there. Um, during COVID it hit and they came in and said, you know, we're not playing games. We're losing $5 million a game for football. So we're not bringing in money. We're going to lay everybody off and terminate some people. They terminated only the older, I, I was third in seniority. So me and the guy who was second in seniority got terminated and everyone else got laid off. Like they just didn't have a job, weren't getting any income. Um, at the time, I was happy that I got laid off because I was just, I was going to leave anyways at the end of the year. So it just sped it up a little bit. Um, they paid me very well to leave. So that was good too. Um, I now consult with people. So like schools then, because I have a reputation, I've been around a long time. So I get individuals and in schools calling up saying, hey, we're in the middle of an NCAA issue you know, will you come represent us? And I always say, I'm not an attorney, so I can't do that, but I can help you get, prepare everything up to the hearing. And then you have to hire an attorney to go to the hearing. There's one or two attorneys that represent 90% of the schools. 
so I know them and so I can work with them. So that's what I'm doing right now. It was a good time to leave. Um, that that person at the Pac-12 got terminated not too long after he he laid us all off, laid off everybody, to, and then took a two and a half million dollar bonus after saying he didn't have money. And so then a month later he got terminated. So it, you know it's a good time. I watch the turn basketball tournaments now, and I have no desire to be there for him thinking oh, I just have to go work those every year. So I'm that's what I'm doing, and I you know I'm I'm just kind of doing what I like. I'm, I'm in a fortunate position. I'm still pretty young. I can do what I want. I don't have to worry about how I'm going to live. And so, you know, it's, it's a good place to be right now. Please talk, talk about your new book and because I'm really fascinated about he uh, hearing about this. I'm so a number of years ago, when during the Reggie Bush case, I got approached by a Hollywood agent who was talking about doing a TV show involving investigations in college sports. And it really got me thinking at the time. And he, at the time they wanted to do a, a reality show. And I'm like, you can't do a reality show because you're going to have people who are trying to cover up what they did. They have to sign waivers and everything. And they're going to come and tell you everything. That's not going to work. And, and I had no interest in it. So I said, no, but I started thinking, I thought, you know, law and order with college sports would be, would be an interesting show because you could fictionalize what had happened. Like they do, they take real stories ripped from the headlines they say, and then they make them fictional, but you know what it is. And then they do a show. So I thought I'd start thinking, you know, that would be interesting to me. I used to get asked all the time to come and speak to groups or by my friends, what are you working on? I could never talk about it because if someone knew that I talked about them, they would never tell me anything. You know, if word got out that I would share what people told me, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be getting, get anyone to cooperate with me. So I could never talk. So when I got close to ending my job at the Pac-12, I started thinking, you know, how could you do this in a way that didn't burn people, didn't embarrass people, but still let people see on the inside? And so I put together a fictional book based off a real case. So this is an actual real factual case. I worked when I was at the NCAA. I changed the name of the school, changed the name of the people. But what basically happened, and I'll give you an in introduction, then you can decide if you want to go read the book. But this co uh, college coach, basketball coach, was coaching at a junior college. He had two players that were star players who were being recruited. So he said to the players, you have to pass a math class in order to go get your, uh, I don't remember what they call them, your junior college degree. Uh, your, God, what is it called? I don't even remember, but you have to pass the math class in order to get that and then to go on to a four-year school. You can't pass it, you guys, it's gonna be too hard for you. So let's do a correspondence course where they'll mail everything and I'll have people help you do it. So he went to the two tutors for the basketball team and they were 18 year old girls and he didn't tell them what he was doing. He went to one of them and said, they have to do the odd problems. If you do the even problems, they'll see how you do it and they'll be able to figure out how to do the odd problems. Then he went to the other ones and said, you have to do the even problems. If you'll do the odd problems. So the girls were doing everything and he, the coach would take the papers, walk over to the players and they would copy it over in their own handwriting purposely missing one or two questions and they'd mail it in. So they did this the whole semester, passing everything. On the final, they had to have it supervised by a, a, some educational person. The coach is friends with the superintendent of schools for the state of Mississippi. He said, hey, these guys have to do a final. Will you proctor it? We'll come to your house and I'll bring some beer and we'll watch basketball while they do it. And the guy said, yeah, sure. So he got the final, covered up where it said final, made, made copies and told the girls, this is their last homework assignment. They did all the work, took it to the guy's house. The players copied it over in their own handwriting. So the whole thing was cheated. They didn't know anything, mailed it in. Everything's fine. The players graduate. They get A's in the class. I think A minus one of them got. And then the coach says to them, now I need you to go to this school. They're, they're recruiting you. And I want you to go there because they're going to hire me to be the assistant coach at that school. It's a good paying job. And the players are like, we don't want to go there. We don't like you. And he said, it'd be a shame if everyone knew you cheated. And so when I talked to everybody, the players said, he basically told us who they're going to believe a coach or you guys, these are inner city kids and stuff. And so it, it became a huge scandal. I won't tell you what happened. It, it, it blew up on everybody. And the, the, one of the girls, the tutors, dad's threatened to kill me when I was trying to interview him. He's like, <laughs> my daughter did nothing wrong. And I said, you can sit in here and if you'll just be quiet and let me get into it, you'll see what happened. And you'll, you'll know I'm not trying to hurt your daughter in any way. I just need to let her, talk about this without prepping her beforehand, but he wanted to kill me. And so it became very interesting. So that's why I made this a fictional book and I have it on Amazon right now. It's called the reluctant players. It's I had the thing that I was most surprised about is 
I have a lot of, I give it to a lot of friends to read and said, tell me what you think, be honest with me. And, you know, my friends are brutal. That's some of them are like, oh yeah, you need to be more detailed. The, the, I had five or six women say to me, I don't even like sports and I love this. Like, it's really interesting. And knowing that it's true, like really made me want to know more about it. So I did that one. It's been somewhat successful. And I'm working on a second one now. That was a story where a football player was having an affair he was a 19-year-old inner city kid having an affair with the head of compliance at a school as a 30, 31, 32-year-old woman. And she was helping him get extra money. And in the middle of the case, he killed somebody. And so I got a call on the Saturday morning from the school saying, hey, so-and-so killed somebody. And I thought he killed the woman, but it didn't. He turned out he killed a former player athlete from the school over a different matter. But so these are the kind of things you don't hear about. Nobody knows about them. So I can tell them and nobody will be able to point the finger. I tried to write the USC case up as a fictional. I wrote a whole book and my wife said, you had to leave out too many details. It's not, it's not good because there's too many things that are left out that I have questions about and I can't do it because everyone will know who it is. So I, I just shelved that for now. But I think I can do these for a long time. I have 10 or 15 books that I can write, no problem. And I usually do one every three or four months. So I think I'm going to do this for a little while. And I go speak to corporations now. That's a big thing for me that they hire me come out. And in a small corporation, I can tell more intimate details and kind of reveal some names. But in a book, I don't want to do that. I think that the thing that is most interesting um, about your job is that you're the one that has to investigate these cases. But at the same time, you're working for the company or, or the organization that is being investigated as opposed to just being a lawyer or a detective who goes out to find the straight facts and, and solve the case, no, no matter what it takes. So at the NCA, you're always the enemy. You, you investigate right. one school and you'll never see those people again. So it was right. different. When I got to the PAC-10 and PAC-12, it became you're dealing with these people. You see them. I go to meetings three times a year with them. I see them on their campuses. So it, it was completely different at that point. It's what you're saying. Like I'm investigating them and I'm also then turning around trying to help them. And right. it took, I, I honestly can say the best compliments I ever got from schools were the ones who knew me said, you know, you come in here, we know what you're coming for. And yet we don't have bad feelings towards you because you're honest with us and you lay it out. You don't like, you don't, little smoke in our face you, you tell us if we do something wrong you tell us but at the end of the day we trust you like chip kelly was in oregon at the time and they had a big issue and i didn't even know him and he pulled me aside and said i feel like my own school set me up and i go why and he said because they're not telling me what's going on i said well the nca asked them not to and most schools still will but oregon decided to follow what the nca asked them to do and i said you've done nothing what you did is wrong like you you did commit a violation but it's something everyone's doing. And so it's not going to play as bad as you think it is. Just keep being honest about it. As, as it went along and it fold, unfolded, he got, they got in some trouble. They had some penalties, but he sent his attorney back to me as the agent back to my office who just showed up one day and knocked on the door. And I'm like, he had left. And I think he was at the Eagles by then. And he said, Hey, I'm just here to thank you for him because he said, you were honest. You didn't lie. You didn't sugarcoat it. You told him he'd done things wrong, which he doesn't hear from people. And he appreciated that. That to me was like, okay, I'm doing my job. I, I had people that were upset with me, but they knew why they were upset with me. They weren't upset with me as a person, but with what I was doing in my employment. And that, you know, it was difficult because you saw all these people, they became friends, but they still, when they did something wrong, you had to deal with it. Well, uh, I, I think that that's all I have for uh, for Ron. And uh, I just want to say we, we appreciate you having uh, having you on. Hopefully we, uh, we, we, can, we can have you on again because you're full of, of, of these stories. And, you know, when, when your next book comes out or if, if you're in the middle of it, uh, we would love to have you back on. But we definitely appreciate uh, having you on. So once again, the reluctant player. Uh, players, is, uh, players, with reluctant S. players, excuse me, will be link in the description to go buy that book. Everyone go buy uh, Ron's book. And uh, ho hopefully uh, we see a, a lot more books from Ron uh, because he has a, he's had a very interesting life. And uh, for, for him to uh, go out and, and make this uh, fictional and still have all, all of these cases in mind, um, I, I, I think it's great. So uh, everyone go ahead and check that out. So that's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, don't forget, March Madness is coming up. It's coming up soon. It is March. Madness is here. So if you're going to be betting on March Madness games or betting in general with the NBA playoffs coming up too, use our code on BetUS when you join. When you join BetUS and you use code THEGQUAD, you will get a 125% sign-up bonus. So go ahead and check that out as well. If you're going to any of these games, 
Use code GQUAD on SeatGeek for $20 off your tickets on your first purchase. So make sure you guys check that out as well. And big announcement we got right now. We are going to be releasing our own March Madness brackets. So you know how every time March Madness comes out and you go online to print out your own brackets, you are going to have the ability to print out a March Madness bracket that is strictly G-Quad branded. So we're going to have all the teams on there, but it's just going to have G-Quad branding on it. So if, if you guys want to uh, check that out, we will be sure to uh, leave a link for that when when it comes out. Obviously, we, we don't have it out right now because the teams aren't all uh, aren't all announced yet. But uh, it, it will be coming out soon. So get ready for that. We're, we're going to have a lot more guests for you. We got a lot more people on the show. Um, and we're definitely excited to have guys like Ron who uh, who, who come on the show and, and are willing, willing to share their stories. So we appreciate everybody for joining us this week. And as always, have a blessed week.